Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am here with my good friend, D. Graves. We are about to dive into a matchup for the ages. This is a Titan versus a Titan. Guns N' Roses' appetite for destruction versus ACDC's Back in Black. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. So today we're going to be talking about Appetite for Destruction first. Obviously, Back in Black came out before Appetite for Destruction, but we just decided to shake things up a little bit and, and proceed with Guns and Roses first today. Our next episode will be on ACDC's Back in Black, and then we will talk Final Judgment at the end of that episode. Yeah, these guys sort of took the world by storm out of nowhere. These guys brought an intensity and a grittiness and a, and a power that I hadn't really experienced yet. You mentioned that this album came out in 1987. And for those of you who are listening and you start to think in your brain, you're like, wait a minute. If you're like me, you attach songs to certain time periods. You're like, well, Sweet Child of Mine was popular the summer of 88. Paradise City really was popular at the beginning of sort of 89. It took a long time. This was a slow builder. It would eventually become the largest selling debut album of all time. So these are two powerhouses that we're talking about here. Well, let's let's dive in and see what happens. Okay, so starting out, uh, history of the band. Interestingly, nobody goes by their given name. <laughs> We're here to tell you a story about Jeffrey and William and Michael and Saul and other Michael and nobody knows who those guys are. So yeah, you have you have Jeffrey Dean Isabel who became Izzy. You have William Bruce Rose Jr., who was then William Bruce Bailey, who was then W. Period Axel Rose. And then you had Michael Andrew McKagan, who was Duff. And then you had Michael Coletti, who became Stephen Adler. And then finally, you had Saul Hudson, who everybody knows as Slash. Cool names. Cool names. Yes. Yeah, Slash, I think, has has a super interesting history. He was born over in the UK. He was born in England. His mom was a clothes designer and designed right. clothes for people like David Bowie and Janis Joplin and, and quite a few other famous folks. And his dad was an artist who designed album covers for uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. I mean, it's, that's a pretty cool, <laughs> a pretty cool couple of parents. <laughs> and uh, so his mom moves out to L.A., to pursue her fashion career and he starts going to school in LA and they're friends with you know a lot of different actors and entertainers and musicians and an actor named Seymour Castle uh, is the one who gave Slash his nickname. Yeah and uh, one other little tidbit that I think was interesting about Slash's mom in particular yeah. she had a relationship with David Bowie. Slash mm -hmm. actually walked in on them together. Doing the wild thing. Do <laughs> Which is interesting because later Axl Rose gets in a fist fight with David Bowie at one of his concerts. So, oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So, Slash starts going to school out in California and he becomes a kick butt BMX rider. That's right. Um, yeah. And there's a local school that has a really great place to either go skate if you're a skater or go ride BMX bikes if you're a BMXer. And one day Slash is out there and he sees this kid go shooting up 
into the air and then come down uh, face first into the concrete. And he's like, oh, gosh. And he runs over. He's like, are you okay? And kid's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, man, let me help you. I'll take you home. And he goes home with them. They become fast friends. And this kid shows him how to play the guitar. He's, he's like, hey, I got this guitar. He's like, oh, cool. Can you show me how? To? And so this kid, Michael Coletti, who had been renamed Steven Adler. Adler, yes, yeah. showed Slash's first chords on the guitar. That's It's incredible. What a moment in rock and roll history. That yeah. face slam <laughs> put together the bits that would become Guns N' Roses. Several hundred miles away in the middle of the country, Izzy, who was at that time Jeff, although I, Axel says he was always Izzy to him, but I've heard different stories. But Izzy and Bill, who becomes Axel, Izzy and Axel both are going to school together in Lafayette, Indiana. I think that's so interesting. Nobody from this band was from LA. No, yeah, they all they were all born met up else. in LA. Yeah, moved in at various times in their lives before Izzy moved out to LA, he and Axel would play together in a garage band. And when I say in a garage band, I mean, they only played in the garage. There were no, <laughs> they did no gigging uh, because they're in Lafayette, Indiana. There was no not a hopping musical scene in Lafayette. <laughs> no, Axel had a rough childhood. Um, you know, he did, he, he had some weird connection that I don't want to go into with his biological father. He thought that his stepfather was his biological father until he was 17. There was a lot of physical abuse, according to him, at the house and an extremely religious household. And I mean, the, the benefit that came from that is that he got to, he learned to play the piano and he learned to sing in front of people uh, at his church. They call it the Bailey Trio. He and his brother and sister would sing together in the church. You know, it's amazing when we go through this, how many artists get their start singing in church? Unfortunately, he also developed a talent for getting in fights and stealing things and <laughs> uh, ended up getting arrested in, a, in the neighborhood of 20 different times as a juvenile delinquent. And so they were, they were about to make him a habitual offender. And he said, I think it's time to move out to California. Just the year before, Izzy, who had graduated from high school, was the only one who had graduated from high school with a impressive D average. Um, <laughs> Had moved out and he thought, I'm going to go find my buddy Izzy. And so he hopped on a bus and made his way out to LA. So while Axel had been getting in trouble with the law, Izzy had been trying to get together with a band in LA. And so shortly after he got there, he joined this band called Naughty Women, which was a punk band, and he played the drums for them. And then in the first show, the audience members suddenly rushed the stage and began attacking all of the musicians. And Izzy says, I just grabbed my cymbal stand and stood with it like a bat trying to fend them off, yelling, get the F away from me, man. <laughs> and that was his introduction to the rock scene in LA. You know, Izzy later on doesn't enjoy Enjoy the chaotic rock and roll lifestyle. No. Which I, which I was just going to say, I respect him so much for this. You know, we'll talk about their history here a little bit, but he quits the band in 91 at the peak of their popularity. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? Screw this. I'm out. Yeah. I don't care. In my mind, I'm like, okay, who is the most valuable member of this band? And I started going through it. I'm like, well, Axel provides all the attitude and the distinctive voice. And I mean, he is the star. Right. Then you take, well, Slash is this 
guitar god and then you start to think man this guy contributed so much to just the sound of the band right yeah well duff was songwriter cohesive guy he contributed songs izzy is sort of the guy that flies on the radar but he's the guy who wrote most of the album oh he wrote yeah he wrote a ton of songs on the album and he's the guy that put them together for the first time really if you have to pick one as the founding member it's going to be him and you know it's interesting because we just we just went through all of these people and he mentioned after he left the band that steven adler left not too long before or not too much before him because he had become too addicted to heroin and couldn't play well anymore his last right. concert was farm aid in 1990 but uh they replaced him as a drummer and izzy said the band didn't sound the same anymore and so steven's contribution was huge Obviously not. I mean, I don't know this. He said that. So right. these five guys came together and made a tight fist that they're all five irreplaceable. So after Izzy's horrendous experience in his first punk show, he, within just a couple of weeks, says, and I'm not going to play with these guys, I'll join this other band, also a punk band called The Adams. And within days, he gets his drum kit stolen from his car. And so he's like, heck with punk. These guys are jerks. <laughs> Is there a heavy metal band I can join? And so he finds his band called Shire, and then he took up the guitar at that point because he didn't have any drums anymore. <laughs> nice. Okay, so then in 1983, Izzy forms Hollywood Rose with Axl Rose. Anything Goes is a song that makes it to Appetite for Destruction. That was originally a Hollywood Rose song. Yeah. But when you listen to it, it's, it's not the same. It's, it's yeah. missing Slash's guitar. The lyrics are different. They had some growing up to do. So Hollywood Rose is sort of the beginning. So 83 Hollywood Rose forms with Izzy and Axel and the remaining members of this other band called L.A. Guns. L.A. Guns was a band that included Tracy Guns, and so they took Hollywood Rose, they took L.A. Guns, they put them together, and it was Guns and Roses. And so Tracy Guns is with them just long enough for the name Guns and Roses to form before he leaves and reforms L.A. Guns again. By this time, by 83, Stephen, who had initially started you know, with the guitar, had learned to play the drums, and he and Slash had previously formed this band called Road Crew, which was named after a Motorhead song called We Are The Road Crew. And while in the Road Crew, they needed a bass player, they put out this ad in a magazine called Music Connection, and Duff McKagan is the one that answers that Call. Now, Duff was a guy who had come from Seattle and decided to come down to L.A. and he didn't know what he's he going to play. He's like, I could play the drums. I could play the guitar. I could play the bass. They need a bass player. All right, I'll answer these guys. And so he can sing, too. Yeah. And so Slash, Duff and Steven together are in Road Crew. Guns and Roses forms and then quickly Tracy Guns leaves and then their drummer leaves and quickly Slash and Steven and Duff are all joined together and we have our classic lineup. Guns N' Roses' first show is March 26, 1985 and that is with the bassist Ole Beck and you know, he's the one that leaves and why Duff joins up and then Tracy and Axel get into a fight and so Tracy leaves so they call Slash to replace Tracy and then when the drummer Rod Gardner quits then they say, okay we got Steven, let's bring him aboard and, they, <laughs> and then they rehearsed for two days and they did their debut show 
show as the classic lineup on June 6th, 1985. It's it's really interesting how these guys all kind of came together. Yeah, well then, you know, Duff had left this Seattle band uh, that he was with and they had previously booked some shows, but since his band didn't exist anymore, he said, hey guys, I got these shows up in Seattle. Why don't we go play those shows? Hey, that sounds like a good idea. We can go, you know, travel a coast. It'll be great, except it's not. Come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. So they they start to venture up to these clubs and they're in two rickety old vans, which both break down along the way. They end up hitchhiking the rest of the way up to Seattle, only to arrive to find out that if you don't promote yourself, the venue's not going to promote you and nobody's going to come see your show. <laughs> but like guys going to war, this created a bond among the members of the band and they became a very tight-knit group. And so they got back to LA and they started playing clubs like the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Roxy, and the Troubadour. And this girl who's their pseudo-manager at the time says, you know, why don't you guys come live in my apartment? It's across the street from the Whiskey A Go-Go and, uh, you know, we'll we'll make it work. And so they all five of the band members are living with her and another girl in this house. And this is the, you know, these, this is where you see the pizza boxes with the songs written on them. <laughs> but they start playing these shows. And the way it works with bands in LA is if you're good enough on Wednesday, they put you on the Thursday rotation. If you're good enough on Thursday, you go to Friday. And then if you're the best bands around, you're getting to play on Saturday nights. And ultimately that's, that's where they got. Okay. So just, just an aside, just a quick an aside, you know, these guys are poorer than dirt. They're living with somebody so that they can afford to have a place to stay. And so they'll get these jobs in various places. And I, one of the places that both Axel and Slash worked together was the video store. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine that at some point in your life, you could have gone and rented a VHS copy of One Crazy Summer from Axel Rose? <laughs> Excuse me, uh, Slash, can you tell me where your copy of The Goonies is? <laughs> so before one show, uh, Slash sees a nice hat that he likes in a uh, store. And so he gives himself a five-finger discount for this uh, <laughs> felt top hat. And then it happens to pass by another store where he sees this kind of cool-looking Native American-style belt. And he's like, hey, that'd look good on the hat. And so he takes the belt, also for free. <laughs> <laughs> And puts it on the hat, and that is where you get the slash trademark look. So they are getting a following at this point. They've they put on an incredible show. If you can say anything about Axl Rose, or that he is fully invested in the live performances that they do, and they start gathering and getting a lot of attention. They had several record labels come and look at them, but the A and R guy for Geffen is this guy named Tom Zutat, and they call him Zoots. Zoots comes to the clubs. He actually got hired by Geffen because he was the guy who had initially signed Motley Crue, and right. Geffen was looking for the next Motley crew. So they party, of course. Hey, we're going to get signed. This is going to be great. They're enjoying the uh, fruits of their labor momentarily. And then the next morning, of course, they're running late. And then Axel loses his contacts and refuses to go in his glasses. And so he's <laughs> scrambling. They're already late. They're already like an hour late and he's scrambling. And so this girl is trying to help him find the contacts. Slash is trying to help him find the contacts. They're looking all over. And finally, like Slash pulls him out of this pair of jeans that Axel had been wearing three days before. And he's like, all right, we found him. And they look around and Axel's gone. Yeah. <laughs> he's just gone. Like, yeah. well, we found the contacts, but we lost Axel. A little foreshadowing of events to come. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> and so, so they're they're an hour and a half late at this point. They finally look out the window at the whiskey a go go, and Axel is sitting in this meditative state on the roof of the whiskey a go go. I can't, <laughs> just can't even imagine. Just you know, like, hey, this is it. You know this. Who hum? So they kept David Geffen waiting for two hours for them to <laughs> arrive to sign the contract. I can't even, I mean, this, these guys, you know, it's like we've heard all the warnings. Nobody else will sign them because of the volatility of the behavior of these guys. And they show up two hours late, but in a move that kind of staggers the imagination, David Geffen went ahead and signed them anyway. Uh, and uh, it turned out it worked out well for Okay, so let's just let's just review. Yeah. We've got habitual criminal criminals criminals. <laughs> yeah. We've got total debauchery. Yeah. We've got drug use. Yes. We've got late for performance. Yeah. We've got wild, dangerous looking band. Yeah. Not pretty. It all comes together beautifully. <laughs> it makes a symphony though. I don't know. Yeah. The record label wants to take advantage of the fact that these guys are hot right now, at least hot in LA. And so they put out an album called Live Like a Effing Suicide. It's kind of like the Prince symbol. There's some symbolic like Hubert like symbols in the title of the album. So it's live and then Hubert equal cook equal live and then the Hubert sign and then like a suicide. Yes. So we always thought it was live like an effing suicide. But the songs on this EP are Reckless Life, Nice Boys, Move to the City, and Mama Ken. This is the first side of the lies album if you're familiar with gnr lies so then the next problem to solve is who do we get to produce this album and they worked with spencer proffer who had done quiet riots metal health which was the uh, first metal album to ever reach the top 10 on the pop charts um, and he worked through several sessions with them uh, they considered mutt lang who we've talked about, you know, with Def Leppard and who was the producer of Back in Black. Yep. And ultimately, they end up with this guy named Mike Klink. You know, one of the producers that you didn't mention, one of the possible producers was Paul Stanley of Kiss. Yeah. And oddly, he they decided not to go with him because he wanted to change up the drum set on Steven Adler's drums too much. And Steven was like, no, screw you, Paul Stanley. I'm not changing my drums for you. So basically, so far, <laughs> if you're keeping score at home, Van Halen said F you to Gene Simmons, and uh -huh. Guns N' Roses said F you to Paul Stanley. Okay. Yep. Did Ace Freely, has he come into play at all? <laughs> not yet. Not yet, but we're right. still early on this. I feel like he's going to. I think Ace Freely, actually, you know what? Ace Freely was the inspiration for the guitar solo by Mike McCready. That's right. On. From She is where he gets the guitar solo for Alive. All right. Peter Chris, uh, pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> right. So looking at Guns N' Roses, not heavy metal. No, this is definitely. a hard rock band. It's hard this rock. is a hard rock band. And when they, when they advertise for a guitar player, they mentioned they looking for somebody with blues influence. Yeah. And Slash, is, Slash has a unique style, and it is very much a hard rock, or the term that was coming out just about this time, a classic rock kind of style. And he actually... <laughs> You know, the, the guy who started managing the band at that point, when he showed up, he was just like, 
I don't think Slash had ever changed the strings on his guitar. So he goes out and buys him a 59 Les Paul replica. This is not a Gibson Les Paul. This is a replica that is built by Chris Derrick. Now, replica doesn't mean a knockoff. It means that this guy, his he was a handmade guitar maker. They called them luthiers. But he, I mean, he got the wood for this guitar from an old barn and he put it together himself and this became the guitar this is slash's go-to guitar that he still owns today and it had a sound that was different than anybody that was on the radio right then they did their recording um at a studio called daryl dragon's rumbo records you know who daryl dragon is no He's Captain from Captain and Neil. <laughs> Just hearing <laughs> that one of the greatest hard rock albums of all time was recorded in Captain's recording studio just blows my mind. Welcome to the Jungle was <laughs> recorded at the place where this song is recorded. Love, love <laughs> yes. So, but as it turns out, it gives them a very authentic sound and clink does things the old-fashioned way i mean he spliced stuff together with a razor blade so you know we're getting into that point in history where digital recording is starting to take over but this still has the true sound of real instruments that you hear on the album which i think i think has to be a huge part of why it's so successful and continues to be so successful before we talk about the songs that are on the album yeah i want to make a brief mention of the songs that did not make the album so here you go. Here's the list. Back off, bitch. You could be mine. Yep. November rain. Wow. And don't cry. Wow. Those songs, those four songs were left off. Kind of, I don't know if you remember back when we talked about Frontiers. Yeah. The great songs were left off the Frontiers album. Yeah. I mean, you had these songs show up again in the Use Your Illusion albums. But I mean, yeah. Don't Cry was a hit. November rain was humongous. And You Could Be Mine was uh, was a big song off the Terminator 2 soundtrack. Yeah. And they still had the best-selling sell, best debut album in U.S. history. Even and, with leaving those songs off, they still managed to do it. And unlike Frontiers, I'm not sure what you would pull to squeeze in those fantastic songs. Appetite for Destruction was released July 20. First, 1987. First song on the album, maybe the best hard rock song of the 80s. Cool. <laughs> this song you has so die. many this song has so many great elements that makes a great hard rock song, right? You oh. have the amazing guitar right off the bat. Yes. You have this incredible axle howl that's just over the top. You have the in the video you have Axel doing his serpentine dance, which yep. the whole world was emulating after that. You have Slash's top hat. And the guitars are dirty and sleazy and irresistible. It's amazing. And 
the song promptly does nothing. Well, that's because MTV fought him the whole way. Okay, so so this this song was the the first single released in the U.S. and the second single released in the U.K. In the U.K., before the album even came out, they released "It's So Easy." It did not do well. Right. Then the next month, they released "Welcome to the Jungle" in both the U.S. and the U.K. Again, it still didn't do very well. I mean, they've got sales, but it's not. You don't you don't have the overnight success of the album that you expect to. I mean, when you're listening to this, holy cow, people should have been blown away immediately. So the question then is, why weren't they? Right. And as you just said, MTV's not playing the video and the radio stations are not playing the song. Okay, so let's let's dive into that because to me, that's a very interesting part here. So Geffen Records actually, I mean, David Geffen himself had to make a deal with MTV to play the song. I don't know if you know this history, but there's a guy named John Malone. He's a very conservative guy, but he owned this little tiny company called Telecom, which right. <laughs> was a pretty big freaking deal. And right. he, he flat out, he said, "Do he said to MTV guys, do not play this band or we're going to take you off of all of our stations. I mean, Telecom is one of the biggest cable providers in the country, maybe the biggest at the time. And he said, if you play these guys, he, he he just saw them as, I suppose, the spawns of Satan or something. And he said, don't play them or we're going to take you off. We will take you off our cable network. That's a pretty big freaking deal. So MTV said, we'll play it one time at 5 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Yeah. At the point, it had been a year. It had been a year since the single had been released. And the record had sold about 200,000 copies, maybe, depending on your resource, maybe 500,000 copies. And it wasn't enough to be impressive to the record label, and the record label was pulling back. They're ready to say, we're ready to be done with these guys. And it was Coots. It was their A&R guy who believed in them, who fought for them, who said, if you played this video on MTV, this album will explode. But... MTV refused to play it. He had to go to David Geffen. Now, David Geffen is no small fry either, That's right. right? That's I mean, right. he's pretty big. I can imagine the guys from MTV and the struggle of we're going to get kicked off the all of these cable networks if we play this song, or we're going to make the guy who owns Geffen Records mad at us if we don't play the song. What are we going to do? I got an idea. We'll play it at 4 a.m., where nobody will hear it, and then we've satisfied. Nobody's going to, you know, John Malone won't know what happened. Geffen will be satisfied that we gave it our go, and so no big deal. So they played the song. It was it was like, depending on what place in the country you were, sure. it was either going to be 4 a.m., 3 a.m., 2 a.m., or 1 a.m. <laughs> and people called in and said, play that video more. They not only did they call in, there were so many calls in that they melted the switchboard. <laughs> I mean, we talked in our Van Halen episode about how Eddie, when he came in and played the guitar, set the sound monitors on fire. The phone calls set the switchboard on fire. That's when so many people called in to say, play that video again. It is we amazing. We almost lost Appetite for Destruction before it got off the ground, which, is, which, yeah. is, which would have been tragic. So I remember could, this. I remember when this song was popular the first time. Okay, so yeah. you had to kind of be an MTV watcher. So for me, this song reminds me of like spring of '88, right? So early '88. Yeah. yeah. They actually released this song twice. Yeah. 
They released yeah, they it, did. and then they, and then after the success of Sweet Child of Mine, they released it again. I could not find the exact, and I looked hard, could not find the exact date that Welcome to the Jungle got played on MTV for the first time. But it seems to me, from my memory, I saw Welcome to the Jungle before I knew what Sweet Child of Mine was. Yeah. Well, it got you, rotation in, in early 88, for sure. Sweet Child of Mine came out in June of 1988, and by September 10th, it hit number one. You know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. You're Here's the thing when I was looking at it. So there's a story that goes along with this, and I've seen it said that it was New York. I've seen it say that it was Seattle. I've seen it said that it was L.A. But Axel says that the inspirations for the lyrics came from an encounter that he and his friend had with a homeless man while they were getting off a bus. Yeah, I believe and that he says Queens. I think that the whole song has influences from those other towns, but Axel's story is, this is when we ran away from home and we stepped off the bus in Queens. Okay, all right. So getting off the bus, there's a homeless guy there and he, trying to scare young runaways, the man yells at him, do you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby, and you're gonna die. All right. One thing I did want to mention, have you ever seen the movie Deadpool? Yeah, the yes. Clint Eastwood Deadpool, not the uh, Ryan Reynolds Deadpool. That's right. The Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood movie Deadpool. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, there's a video shoot. Yes. And the director of the video is Liam Neeson. Yes. And the song that they use is Welcome to the Jungle. And the and lead the singer is? Jim Carrey. <laughs> yes, that Jim Carrey. Oh, man. Yeah. Before Liam was huge, before Jim was huge, and about the time that uh, Guns N' Roses became huge, all of that came together. <laughs> Those guys actually have a cameo in the movie. So Yeah, they're, they're at the funeral after uh, Jim Carrey. Well, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry. I'm about to spoil a part in a 32-year-old <laughs> movie. When Jim Carrey dies, you know, they have the funeral and the, the band members are there. The Guns N' Roses band members are play the parts of his band members at his funeral. Slash said that's the first song that Axel wrote the lyrics to that Slash came up with the riff part and they kind of wrote it together. So the video was directed by a guy named Nigel Dick. Yes, that was his real name. Nigel Dick. Could you say that one more time? <laughs> is it Nigel <laughs> Dick directed this video. And uh, his previous work included Shout by Tears for Fears. He did Love that it. video. Yeah. Then he did Welcome to the Jungle in 87. He did Wonderwall in 95. And then he did Oops, I Did It Again in 2000. So wow. this this is only a handful. This guy is a very prolific video director. There are tons of videos that he's done. But the idea that we have Tears for Fears, Guns N' Roses, Oasis, and Britney Spears in that catalog is pretty impressive. Nice. When they released this song as a single, they did it a couple of times. And one of them was a maxi single, which means it's not just an A-side and B-side. It's You have a couple of songs on each side. And do you know what the backing song was for Welcome to the Jungle? No it was this song called Whole Lot of Rosie by a little band called ACDC. Guess what? That will come into play later on when we get into the history of Yes. Back in Black. Love it. 
Also on the maxi single was It's So Easy and Knocking on Heaven's Door. Wow, that's awesome. Nice. Okay, so we're done with Welcome to the Jungle. The next song on the album, track number two, is a song called It's So Easy. This song is so good, man. Yeah, yeah. And you you could play it at any, you know, church or social gathering, whatever, (laughs) you know. (laughs) This stuff is so in your face. And this was this was, I mean, here's here's a here's a song that screams why you don't get played on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) This song was actually written by Duff McKagan. It was written with his friend West Arkeen who is also a co-writer on Patience and The Garden and Yesterdays. Duff, I, I got to read a bit of his biography and I got to recommend it to anybody who hasn't read it out there. Just what I've read so far is wonderfully written. It's engaging. It's it's a good book. You should pick it up. Okay. But Duff talks about early on whenever they were doing live sets and Axel would introduce him and he'd say, and this is Duff, the king of beers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, honestly, all of the guys had substance abuse issues and Duff was a heavy, heavy drinker. And that's what it, that's what the circumstances were. And so not too long after they just are starting to become famous, Duff gets this call from these guys who say, hey, we're doing this kind of like animated thing. And we just were wondering, we were thinking about calling the beer Duff Beer is that okay with you? And he was like, sure, whatever. You know, who cares? As it turns out, that little animated thing happened to be The Simpsons. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so this song is kind of known because Axel sings really low, okay? He starts off the song singing super low. He was always a baritone growing up. Like even when he was a younger kid, he would sing baritone. And that his more recognizable singing now is not what he would normally do. It was when he was he was playing early on before Guns N' Roses formed, but in those early uh, Hollywood Roses sets that he at some point went into that higher register and all the guys in the band went, dude. That's the way you need to sing. Yeah. And so this is actually a, a, a sample of what he had sounded like before he found his signature sound. When they asked him about it, he said, I sung it low because it fit the attitude of the song better. Well, the song is about, not about money because they hadn't become successful yet. The so easy was getting the ladies. Yeah. It's going to be hard to keep this uh, family friendly with the subject matter we're going to cover throughout this album. Right. Yes. Especially some sampling that occurred on one of these songs. I can't wait to talk about that. But, (laughs) okay, I'm really interested to talk about the video, okay? Okay. And when when people go, wait a minute. There's a video? There's a video to this song? There is a video to this song, okay? It's it's incredible, all right? So the video was filmed October 10th, 1989. That's funny. Okay, this was released July 21st, 1987. This is two years after the release of the album, okay? Right, and, How, the, and the, the single was released before the release of the album. It, it's all out of whack. This whole album 
because they rode the wave for so long. Yeah. They had to keep pumping out videos. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. So the video was shot October 10th, 1989, over two years after the release of the original single. Uh -huh. The promo video was made at the Cat House in Hollywood. Okay. Yep. It's heavily edited because it shows Aaron Everly in bondage. Aaron Everly, daughter of Don Everly of the Everly Brothers. That's who the song Sweet Child of Mine is written about. Yeah. And we'll talk about that more here in just a minute. But she is tied up, tied down, up against the wall for the entire video, okay? But here's the interesting thing, okay? This is life with this band. Right before they shot this video, they have this big show at the Cat House. Uh -huh. Who shows up for the show? Well, Slash's mom shows up. <laughs> and a friend of hers, David Bowie. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So David Bowie starts to hit on Aaron Everly. So he and Axel get in a fist fight before they shoot this video. <laughs> That's awesome. That's it. Axel Rose, uh, David Bowie, fist fight. That's hilarious. The release date of this video, okay? This is not a typo. When you say, I don't, I don't really remember this. Well, that's because this video was released May 27th, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious because it. they start off the video and they said, uh, Axel says, we're making this for ourselves. If we made a nice video for MTV, we could put it out and sell my records and shit, but instead we're going to spend 150 grand just to make something we want to see. And so that's what well, they got because nobody else saw it for another 30 years. Apparently everybody, Axel wanted to see Aaron Everly with a ball gag in her mouth. So, <laughs> so horrible. <laughs> that's terrible. I know. I know. All right, moving on to Night Train. Night Train is this very high-quality wine that Guns N' Roses would enjoy after a long day of recording Appetite for Destruction. It is also enjoyed by other wine connoisseurs that we call winos. I'm kidding. This is a very cheap wine. Night Train is a very cheap wine, and everything else that I said is true. Okay, this is a this this song is amazing, right? This is another great song. It's totally about getting drunk. This song was ranked eighth on Guitar World's list of top ten drinking songs, right? Right, right. <laughs> so they Slash talks about how they came up with this anthem right on the spot, right? So uh -huh. Slash and Izzy wrote the main riff while they were sitting on the floor of the band practice room, but they didn't right. have any lyrics. So right. one night they're they're wandering around Palm Avenue, sharing a bottle of Night Train, and someone yelled, "I'm on the Night Train." <laughs> then the whole band jumped in, and Axel improvised the line, "Bottoms up, fill my cup." Yeah, and there you have it. The rest is rock and roll history. At uh, some of the shows that they did in 1987, Axel would give drinking tips from the stage. He would introduce the song and then say, in these liquor stores that the winos hit up, right beside us, the Thunderbird here, you're going to find some Night Train. That'll F you up twice as bad as Thunderbird, and it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> so this song was released July 29th of 1989. Again, two years after the release of Appetite for Destruction. And... After the release of Patience, this is 
they're still riding Appetite for Destruction after they've released another album. It's incredible. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. When you have an album that is filled with so many great songs, of course, you're just going to keep churning out the hits. Yeah, absolutely. So we're done with Night Train. All Next right. on the album is a song called Out to Get Me. These lyrics are about young Axel, a.k.a. Billy Bailey, being in and out of trouble his entire life. Yeah, and about the police that were out to get him, right? <laughs> Slash talks about how this is the band being against the, the world. I don't buy it. I think this is legal trouble from Axel. Yes, yes. Some of the lyrics in this, I, I think, are are very accurate emotions for Axel. If you if, if you know anything about Axel, this doesn't really surprise you. You can tell this is deep-seated anger in Axel. Yeah, I mean he he talks about how after shows, the rest of the guys in the band will, you know, go have a drink and ready to party and hang out with people, but he needs like an hour or two just to come down from the intensity that he builds up while he's singing these songs cuz he lives in each song as he sings it he remembers the motivation for the words behind the song and he relives it as he's blowing our mind with it this song is great this is a turn it up song as well so i've got just just to recap i've got one two three four songs in a row that i'm going to turn the radio up every single time no skipper yet no skipper yet Moving on to Mr. Brownstone. Incredible song. Yes. Freaking it, this, love it. Yeah. It, it, it kicks all kinds of butt. It And this is, you know, again, this is... This is the band saying, we're not going to sing about pretty things. We're not going to sing about uh, love stories, although that does come up here later on in the album. But we're going to sing about the life that we've lived. You know, we've got Welcome to the Jungle. We've got It's So Easy. You know, these life events built the song. And this one is definitely not only about the life that they had had in the past, but the life that they were currently leading. Absolutely. I mean, Mr. Brownstone, this is a direct reference to heroin. So the the lyric that we heard there at the beginning, the show usually starts around seven. We go on stage around nine. That was a direct reference and dig on to the guys who because they were all shooting up heroin, would show up two hours late for the show. And so Axel would sit there and he's got this expectation to start at seven. He's got this energy built up so that he's ready to go. He knows that the crowd is expecting them at seven and these guys keep him waiting there for two hours and it drives him absolutely nuts. And so that's, I mean, this is a, this is that emotion coming out full force on this song so they all lived in their apartment together and they moved out and as they're moving out axel says he found a piece of yellow paper wadded up in the corner this is where izzy and steven's room was he opens it up and it had the lyrics to mr brownstone on it and he read it and thought man this is this is great whenever they were opening up for the rolling stones in la it was october of 89 so they had 
they had been playing together for two solid years and Axel comes out and says, unless certain people in this band get their together, these will be the last Guns N' Roses show you'll ever effing see because I'm tired of too many people in this organization dancing with Mr. G.D. Brownstone. That was to get the attention of Slash and Izzy Stradlin and Steve Adler. This was the beginning of the end for Guns N' Roses. Slash, even though he was strung out, said that statement and that embarrassment, and he knew it was directed at him, and he said it, it made him hate Axel. Duff thought it was embarrassing for this to surface on stage and made him want to quit the band. So that public call out in October of 89 started the breakup. Yeah, they actually kicked Steven Adler off for a while and only let him back in if he signed a contract promising never to do heroin again, which he signed and then promptly broke, which is why he got fired from the band. Fired in 1990, that's right. I love Mr. Brownstone. It's a fantastic song. It's about heroin. I don't care. I still love it. <laughs> right. It's about heroin, but you can dance to it. (laughs) (laughs) This brings us to what every suburban kid in my neighborhood freaking loved in January of 89. This is the sixth song on the album. This is Paradise City. If I say to you, D, take me down to Paradise City, the grass is green and the girls are pretty, and you don't have a line after that, you're you're probably not enjoying this podcast at this point. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting if you take if you take in some of these songs, some of these songs, not all of these songs, some of these songs. If you take the lyrics away from the music and the attitude and the the dirty tattooedness of it all, and just put them down on a piece of paper, this is freaking poetry, man. <laughs> Captain America's falling apart. He's a court jester with a broken heart. <laughs> this is one of the great sing-along rock songs of the late 80s. This reached number five on the Hot 100. So let me ask you this. When you and your junior high to high school friends were singing this song, would you change the lines? Because (laughs) Slash wanted the chorus to be, take me down to the paradise city where the girls are fat and they got big titties. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure I heard from some of my my sophomoric friends. <laughs> uh, that, that is definitely uh, locker room stuff right there. They wisely he, changed the words though to make it a number five hit. Yeah, it might not have been, gotten as much radio play with that line. <laughs> <laughs> they, the guys outvoted Slash on that on those lyrics. That's great. Slash has stated that this is his favorite Guns N' Roses song. Oh, wow, and right. One of the things that he always comments is he says, our best work is the collaborative work. Guns N' Roses was traveling. They had, were playing a gig in San Francisco, and on the way back, they are traveling in the van, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. He said that the band was in the back of the van, the back of the van, drinking and playing acoustic guitars when he came up with the intro. Yep. Duff and Izzy started playing along, and Slash started to hum in a, me- a melody. And that's when Axel sang, take me down to the Paradise City. And then they just sort of were all together, threw in their bits, and it became this wonderful rock anthem. Yeah, this was this was actually the first song that they wrote together as a band. I might, this might be the best encore song of all time. 
Okay. When you leave, when you play Welcome to the Jungle and It's So Easy and Rocket Queen and you leave, you say, thank you, Boston. We'll see you next time. Wait a minute. We're not done until we play Paradise City. All right. I did hear Axel talk about how the verses in Paradise City are about the jungle, right? The Captain yeah. America falling apart. He's a court jester with a broken heart. Yes. But the chorus is like the Midwest, the right. hopeful, feel-good, safe. Indiana. Indiana. Right. Yeah. We named the dog Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. We done with Paradise City? Man, I hate to be done with Paradise City because you have this. Okay, we're just going to skip to the end. Here's the end. It's so awesome. I mean, ah, that gum. What a great way to finish off the song. It's timeless. It really, anytime this comes on the radio, I've heard it 10,000 times. I'm turning it up. I'm singing along. I'm singing, yep. take me home. All right. So stop your tape, hit eject, kick it out, flip it over to the other side. And as I mentioned that, I forgot to mention, there is no first side and second side on this tape. There is no A side and no B side. Right. G side and an R side. Nice. So flip your tape over to the R side. And here we go with my show. That gum is such a good song. Pretty, man. I, I, I mean, I just got to say this. When you flip the tape over, I always had this trepidation. Like, we've just finished this fantastic side, and I'm flipping over to the other side, and I'm just worried that they put all their crap on the second side. And then this song pops on, and you're like, holy crap, this whole album is going to be good. Yeah. So Axel is riding in the, in the car with a friend from high school, a girl named Michelle yeah. Young. And yep. they're listening to Elton John on the radio. And the song, Your Song, comes on. Yes. Play it here, right? And you can tell everybody this is your song. Beautiful song. And according to Axl Rose, he and Michelle were in the car together. And she said, she just happened to mention that she had always wanted someone to write a song about her. Right. And so he kind of took that as a challenge, right? The only All problem right. was, this is a girl who had was addicted to drugs. Her mom had, had died from a heroin overdose, and her yeah. dad was working in the pornography industry. Yeah. yeah. Kind of hard to come up with a sweet little love sonnet for, for that person. Right. So they just wrote it honestly. <laughs> well, actually, he, he, his first attempt was this sweet, romantic one that had absolutely almost nothing to do with the reality of her life, right? Right, yeah. And And... And he was unhappy. He just felt dishonest about it. So he changed it to the honest version. Right. And he brought it to members of the band. And he's like, Slash, what do you think of this? And Slash like, dude, you cannot play this you for her. You can't play this. Yeah, no. Everybody, everybody was like, no, you can't do this. This is horrible. And so it's good that they do have some moral compass on this. <laughs> but... But they end up, Axel ends up calling her and, and he's just honest. He's just like, hey, you know, I did what you wanted. I wrote you a song, but I don't know that you're going to like the lyrics. And she ended up being okay with it. She she was happy that they didn't sugarcoat it. And, and she was happy that it was honest and truthful to her horrible life. I heard her talk about this. She's a, she went to a concert 
They played My Michelle. The whole place is going bonkers to a song written about her, and she's standing there in total anonymity yeah. and just marveling that this song is about her and nobody knows who she is. She said later on that when they asked her about it that she didn't care because she was so effed up, but she said, either way, I can't deny that it's true. My dad does distribute porno films and my mom did die. So what do you, you know, it's not black. It's not slander. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. Right. This song is so good. I, I love it. I, so good. Once again, a full on top down, turn it up. Banging your head. Yep. So good. You're banging your freaking head of this song. All right, after my Michelle, that brings us to a song called Think About You. It was written by Izzy, and it actually was written before he joined up with Guns N' Roses. And Tracy Guns, of course, who was a part of the band momentarily, right, knew, I mean, Izzy comes in, you know, starts this band, Hollywood Rose. He They get together with Tracy Guns, Guns and Roses forms. But Tracy said, this song is about this woman named Monique Lewis, who we all, quote, unquote, dated. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Axel actually has a tattoo of this lady on his arm. Really? This is yeah. something I haven't heard yet. This is good stuff. Yeah. Okay. I heard that's Izzy. The whole story. I got. I got no more. Hey, that's okay. That's a good story. Okay, I heard Izzy say it's a quick love song about drugs, sex, Hollywood, and money, which is basically what Appetite for Destruction is about. Yeah, whole album. To me, this is a good song, but this is the weakest song in the album. This is the only song that I think eh, I might want to skip this one. But most of the time, I listen to it anyway. It's still good. So Axel has a tattoo of this girl on his arm. He also has on his arm a tattoo of a cross with faces on it, which you will recognize as the cover the of this cover. album, right? Yeah. Well, this what that wasn't the original album cover. They had as the original album cover this artwork by a guy, by a guy named Robert Williams. But it's this very kind of weird alien attacking a robot that's either raped or about to rape this girl and her panties are around her ankles and it's i mean you're just adding fuel to the fire of all of those <laughs> record companies and mtv executives who said we are not interested in this band they're too dangerous we don't want them and so ultimately they ended up saying we got to change the album cover and axel already had this tattoo on his arm and so it you know every time i saw it i thought oh he got the tattoo because of the cover now the cover came from his tattoo the yeah the robot painting is strange yeah it's, it's, but i mean it the guy's famous you know there's there are there is a whole like segment of artists uh, harry crumb i think was the name of one of them, but i mean they would do these kind of graphic or pornographic almost comic artwork but it, it was really popular like this i remember seeing axel talking about this painting selling for like ten thousand dollars whenever it was yeah. first produced yeah after think about you we have sweet child of mine <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, so I know that you are thinking the same thing that I am thinking, which is this is awesome. That intro guitar is awesome. As it turns out, Slash played it as a joke. That fact alone blows me away. He was talking with Steven and he's like, I'm trying to yeah, I'm trying to do a sound that sounds like a circus. And when you say that, you're like, Okay, yeah, actually I can kinda hear that and yeah, what he's yeah. playing there. But he's trying to make this goofy sound, but then the other guys end up liking it and then Axel puts this these love song lyrics to this song that Slash started out with as a joke and he hates this song. <laughs> he hates it. He said he hated it for a long time, but he came to embrace it because the fans love it. And I think that's cool. I hate it when artists hate their own work. But Axel had this love poem that he had written for Aaron Everly, daughter of is, the Everly brothers, Don Everly. Right. It and is such a love poem. Axel actually married Aaron. It lasted about five minutes. This song reached number one September 10th, 1988. You know, as I mentioned before, there's a little bit of discrepancy about whether it was the video for Welcome to the Jungle that brought them into the spotlight or whether it was this song. And I think I'm probably going to land on it. it was a combination of the two. I yeah. would not have been as interested in this song had I not seen the video. But then this song is flat out freaking amazing. And I can see how it was the lead in for other people to embrace them. Because you got this band that is rough 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 singing about the worst parts of life and then they come out with this beautiful she's got eyes of the bluest skies and if they thought of rain i'd hate to look into those eyes and see an ounce of pain her hair reminds me of a warm safe place where as a child i'd hide and pray for the thunder and the rain Quietly, quietly pass by. by. It's like freaking Walt Whitman. I mean, it's just beautiful. It is. It is. It's uh, it's poetry, and it's tender, and it's genuine, and it's loving, and it still rocks. The guitar solo in this song is incredible. You know, it's interesting. The end part of this song, Axel's sitting there, and he's talking to one of the guys who is helping them produce the album. They got to the end, and they didn't know how to sort of close the song out. And he said, I think we need to have a breakdown at the end of this song. And, and Axel says, well, well what are, where do we go? I mean, what, where do we go now? <laughs> and the guy says, I think you ought to sing that. I've got something that's going to blow you away. You ready for this? Yeah. Have you heard the song Unpublished Critics from the Australian band Australian Crawl? No, okay. I have not. I'm going to play this for you. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Turn it up. All right. 1981 song. Once you got into the lyrics, okay. So it's no goodbye blue sky, but there are similarities, right? Okay. So the chord progression, because as I was listening to it, and I'm thinking, okay, but that's, I mean, that's every country song, right? I mean, that's also Sweet Home Alabama. But when you got to the melody of the lyrics in that one, I was like, ooh, 
there is a substantial similarity to the melody and the lyrics there. That's that is cool. I, 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 I yeah, my mind is is reasonably blown. Yes, pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Yeah. All right. I don't know what more we can really say about this song other than the summer of '88, along with "Portion Sugar on Me." Flashback to our hysteria episode. This song ruled the airwaves the summer of 1988. Incredible song. Okay. So, are we done with Sweet Child of Mine? <laughs> so good. It's so yeah. good. I love it. All right. So, the beauty of Sweet Child of Mine flows right into a heavy, fast-paced, rock-your-socks-off song called You're Crazy. So the intro to this song is very, very similar to the end of Paradise City. Like I, I don't, I don't know on the live show if they went from one to the other, but I could sure see them doing it. Yeah, for sure. Very fast-paced, uh, super in-your-face, uh, mosh pit. Yeah. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. The interesting thing to me about this song is there's several different versions. Okay. So the one uh, that appears on Appetite for Destruction is super fast-paced and sort of a speed song, right? The version on GNR Lies is it's acoustic, of course, but it's slowed way down. And that's the way the song was originally intended to be. Steven Adler has said that he prefers the slow version much better. Right. It's got a groove and a blues that the other one doesn't have. The original release, you're meant to bang your head. The other one, you're meant to tap your foot. Axel's vocals on this song are amazing. He gives me like chills the way he's, he can ride that wave so high after hearing his baritone on It's So Easy. You shared something with me about his voice and... A, a survey that was taken. Tell me about that. Okay. So according to uh, concerthotels.com, uh, a survey that, you know, it's not Time Magazine or anything, but they came up with, they determined that Axl Rose has the widest range of any singer in pop music history. That's wider than Mariah Carey. Wider than Freddie Mercury? According to the survey, because wow. he goes so low and can hit those super high notes. Yeah. It also really... determined that he was the greatest singer in history. <laughs> I liked his comment. Range, yeah. They asked him about this, right? And I thought his comment was great. Yeah. He's like, hey, thanks. I'm honored. He's like, but I know, you know, there's a little bit of a back backlash on this. He's like, there are a lot of singers that I prefer to hear sing other than me, but I'm honored. That's a good way to put that. Yeah. But I wonder if he's mellowed a little bit in his old age. This song... <laughs> In the chorus, it goes, you're crazy, then you're effing crazy, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. But the song originally was written as a possible single, so they wanted to leave the curse words out of it, right? Right. So yeah. they didn't add the curse words until they were playing it live. <laughs> and there was a girl that was throwing stuff at him and trying to get on the stage. And as he was singing this song, he was looking at her. He's like, you're effing crazy. <laughs> Moving on to a song called Anything Goes. Mm -hmm. 
originally performed, written and performed by Hollywood Rose. Totally different song. They changed the lyrics. They changed the music. Okay, so the intro to this song, you notice the guitar sounds way different than the other songs in the album, right? Right. So he is using something called a talk box. Slash is using something called a talk box with his guitar. Um, if you are a Bon Jovi fan, which I know that you are, I am. Uh, this is that's something that Richie Sambora uses all of the time. Right. Uh, probably the most famous talk box example that I can think of is from Frampton Comes Alive, the song Do You Feel Like I Do. Um, all right. I would argue that Living on a Prayer is a little more famous, but keep going. <laughs> You'd be wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> on next week's like podcast, uh, we'll be debating Living on a Prayer versus Peter Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is the only song on Appetite that Slash uses the talk box on. It's that kind of weird, you can hear him wabu wabbing to yep. the guitar as it's playing, but it's a very unique sound. But yeah, I thought you would enjoy the fact that he's doing that since you like Richie Sambora so much. That's cool. That's cool. It's on the weaker side on the album, but it's still one I love. Still a great song, for sure. Yep. All right, that brings us to the last song on the album, a song called Rocket Queen. Great intro, great guitars. Mike. Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked about you listened to, to the first song on the b-side or the r-side in this case and think okay these guys are going to do well on the second side and then they finish it off with something like this and it is awesome I like they bring it home just wonderfully yeah this song is amazing amazing good song it's like two songs mashed together yeah so you have the first part and you have the here i am i'm your rocket queen yeah and then then to finish it out with this sort of a it's like a sweet child of mine, like love song. It's really interesting. Yeah. There are a couple of ladies involved with this particular song. And the first one they mentioned in the liner notes, her name is Barbie Von Grief. And she was somebody, she was somebody who they crashed with basically like a lot of people. And she had another girl that they had started a band together and she wanted to call the band rocket queen you know she's just an 18 year old kid hanging out with these these guys but slash referred to her as a queen of the underground scene um, but she was the one that they gave they gave credit in the liner notes for although i don't know that she's the one that probably deserved the most credit on the song <laughs> <laughs> we, we have to talk about adriana smith yeah so adriana smith was stephen adler's girlfriend kind of yeah. No, she was she was his girlfriend and she was mad at him. <laughs> this is great. She she was his girlfriend and she was mad at him, so she came and kind of offered herself up to the band, I guess. And so Axel said, "Hey, you know, why don't we we record it for, you know, art?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a great idea. Ah. Uh, yeah, this Let's will justify into what the, we're about uh, to do. That's right. Oh my gosh! So she, so he said he propositioned her. Let's go have sex in the vocal booth. Uh huh. And we'll record the sounds. Uh huh. And we'll put it over the bridge of the song. <laughs> and she said, "I'll do it for the band 
and a bottle of Jack Daniels. And that's what she got, along with some infamy. She said later on that this weighed pretty heavily on her soul. She only got a bottle of Jack out of it, and then the band became famous, and that was all she ended up with, and drug addiction and shame. (laughs) Something to tell her grandkids about. (laughs) Hey. Come over here, kids. I need you to listen to this song. Uh, you hear that sound? So I, this that that kind of brings up a story that happened to me because I'm listening to this. I'm listening to this album, and I put it on, and Cole, my 12 year old's in the car with me, and it gets to the part where Axel's going, ah, ah, and Cole's like, it really bothers me when he does that. <laughs> and I said, why he's like dad i know what he's doing and he and he's like oh man the guys at school they make that noise it's just so gross and I was like, <laughs> just okay, say cole man. he's not even pretending like they usually are <laughs> so you know they had to set up a mic for this right they had to set up you can't just you know <laughs> i hope they set up a candle up. too you know it <laughs> They dimmed the lights, they set the mic up, and then they, they exited the room. So the, the guy who mixed the album, his name's Michael Barbero, and he didn't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> and so he set up the microphones, and then he left. He had this assistant engineer named Victor DeGlio record it. And so on the album, in the notes, DeGlio is listed as Victor, quote, the f***ing engineer, DeGlio, <laughs> because of his contribution. <laughs> oh, that's great, oh, man. Gosh. Oh, that's almost... Oh, that is hilarious. Oh, it's my more gosh. embarrassing than what Adriana Smith has to live with. <laughs> so, Rocket Queen was the song that they were performing in St. Louis in 1991, when there was a guy, you know, it's pretty commonplace these days that people have cameras at shows. I mean, you can't avoid it with everybody has a phone that has a camera on it. But back in 1991, it was rare and it was really frowned upon. And Axel sees this guy taking pictures of him and tries to get the security to do something about it. They don't do anything. So he decides to take matters into his own hands. He jumps out in the crowd, hits the fan with the camera, kind of has to fight up the security guys, gets thrown back up on the stage and says, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And he throws the mic down and walks off stage. And the rest of the band goes with him and a full-scale riot breaks out. There are some amazing, amazing stories that follow this band post-Appetite for Destruction. But those are a podcast for a later day when we cover Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I would love to hear anyone's suggestions for what goes with Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. What's a good matchup for it? We want to hear from you guys. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. Email us. Let us know your suggestion for what is the best matchup for Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. All right. So that wraps up Appetite for Destruction. Join us for part two of the Appetite for Destruction versus Back in Black podcast. We really appreciate all the support you've been giving us out there. We're overwhelmed by how many people are listening and joining in and communicating with us on Facebook. We're blown away. 
Thanks, guys. Please, please check us out on Facebook at Shirley Podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at Shirley Podcast. Or if you want to, you can email us, ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Okay. So according to this list, Axel's voice, I'm not a musician, but it it goes from super low F1. I don't know what that means. Okay. okay. I mean, I know what it, it's just a, an F, F lower note. A, a low F on the scale. Yeah, sure. A low F on the scale to a high of B sharp six. Okay. There's no such thing as B sharp. <laughs> Let's start over. Let's start this one over. <laughs> Does it say B sharp? It has it a B like- and it has a little little note thing by it. Okay, so it looks like another like little B, right? A little baby B. Okay, okay, good, good. All right, so you just you misinterpreted the sim the symbol. That's B flat. <laughs> I was really, really going to judge this contest. Oh, be sharp. Okay. Yeah. No wonder they thought he was great. Yeah, really. Okay. I'm going to start this little conversation over real quick. Okay. I think it's great. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if you saw this, D, but there's a source out there called ConcertHotels.com. They came out with the list of greatest vocalists of all time. Did you say ConcertHotels.com? Concert hotels.com oh if concert hotels.com is speaking you should listen i'm just telling you on this list <laughs> steve perry is below eminem <laughs> we're literally literally weeping right now <laughs> <laughs> all music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the u.s copyright law